0: Welcome to Cuba, Pete, from Studio A in Las Vegas. No laughing matter. Today, I am honored to have one of the most respected journalists in this country, in the world, actually, who actually was uh, Newsweek Magazine, if I'm not mistaken, so did I, that named you one of the 15 people that make our country great.
1: Is it bad that I always think, like, why 15? Doesn't 15 (laughs) seem like a (laughs) weird number to you? Well,
0: she was number one.
1: 15?
0: Soledad is one of the most impressive people I have ever met in my life. She's honest, she's brilliant, she has a deep sense of social justice. Here comes the love fest. Here comes the love <laughs> fest. Are we
1: recording this? You guys yeah. are We wrong. are,
2: we are. <laughs> yes, we are. yes she's, and you'll have your turn to, to love on him. Just, <laughs> just,
0: just wait. <laughs> she's won three Emmys, Peabody, the DuPont and the Gracie Award, if I'm not mistaken. She is... Uh, has her own show, she has her own production company, but she has her own show, matter of fact, with Soledad O'Brien, she's with HBO's Real Sports, PBS NewsHour, she has made some of the most powerful documentaries, she has experienced some of the most disastrous things in people's lives. But most importantly, she's a soccer mom, she loves horses, and she's been (laughs) married to Brad for a while. It'll be a time, one time when I called her, she goes, I'm at a soccer match. Can I call yeah. you back?
1: <laughs> Literally.
0: <laughs> and she has a way of bringing things to it is. So uh, this podcast is about the intersection between health or rather disease, policy, racism, culture, the arts.
2: Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't introduce me. Oh, I am sorry. Wait, this is Lou. Like, yeah. What is that
1: about? <laughs> like you like, did to introduce
2: Lou. Did you notice that? Like he loved on you for all that time. So Yeah, uh,
1: and let me tell you that, that would be a red flag. As, as a TV anchor, uh-huh. we had a maneuver called the the Pat O'Brien. Remember Pat O'Brien? He used oh, yeah. to anchor I think, like oh. an um an entertainment show. And the Pat O'Brien, if you worked with Pat O'Brien, It's a maneuver where you're standing together as an anchor team, right? But the Pat O'Brien was... He would do a thing where he'd pretend like he was referencing you, but actually use the maneuver to step in front of you. Wow. And all of a sudden, you'd find yourself behind Pat O'Brien. Like, hey, hi, hey, hi. <laughs> Put Pat O'Brien on you. You have a Pat O'Brien done to you. I,
2: I see that. I see that. <laughs> I, I think um, I'm going to learn that maneuver so. for the future. <laughs> oh, it's let, very let good me, maneuver. Let, it's let very smooth.
1: Key it's too late to introduce me yes. now,
2: Joe. I am now under the bus. Soledad, Please. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let me save. You.
1: I am so happy to talk to both of you. And uh before we get going, I have to say Lou did me a very solid favor not too long ago. Uh and I'm just very grateful. Um, really a, a super, super uh helpful in some professional stuff that I was uh trying to trying to work out. And I just I'm really grateful. And I know you guys are busy, and, and Joe, you're you're always there to answer my medical queries and and uh and and advice, give me advice about things. So thank you to both of you. I'm really um, thrilled to be on your podcast, your new podcast. Uh, and I'm also just thrilled to know both of you. So a, a big thanks.
0: Feelings and, very going through that, we're starting a whole new med school, and we're trying to get it right. And with our senior liter- leadership, we have, because there's such a lack of diversity in medical education, and our senior leadership, which is six members that so we came out here from Miami, of those, four of the six are women, which is completely opposite of the statistics of uh, uh, leadership in academic centers. About 10% of women are actually in the leadership positions, if I'm not mistaken. Three of the six are African Americans. Two were born outside the United States. I'm counting Canada, but still, it's, 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 it's northern. It's, it's that. I'm Hispanic, and we want to deal with the disparities, prepare the future workforce, come back to humble... Empathetic, compassionate, clinically excellent physicians that actually respond socially, and they're accountable to what's going on in society. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I uh, I did an interview yesterday about the rise in alcoholic liver disease uh, being admitted into hospitals. Thirty percent at USC, fifty percent at Mass General, and they were asking me, are, "Are was I surprised by that?" I said, "Well, no, because after any disaster." there's always an uptick with alcohol and drugs. But the problem isn't the alcohol and the drugs. The problem is the social determinants and the lack of behavioral health therapy in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's something that we're not addressing. And we need, we, we need to address that. But that's addressing a problem. If you were to advise us, being that I found out you were pre-med, <laughs> What would you advise at a medical? I can
1: diagram a molecule of oxygen for you. That's about it. That's my strength. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: well, and maybe not even.
0: What do we What do we have to do in medical education to produce a type of physician that has all those qualities?
1: You know, I, I think it seems to me, as someone who has a number of doctors in the family, that a lot of the business of medicine sometimes seems to derail doctors from the the job. Uh, I know certainly for my siblings and my in-laws that often, you know, there are these sort of financial pressures around how much time you can spend with a patient, frankly. Um, I think there's a reason, right? The, why the doctor kind of runs in and spends a moment with you and then runs out for the most part because financially it, it just takes a lot of time. And most of the doctors that I know would talk about, then they go home and bring all their billing home with them because they actually have to spend time not in the office doing that. So I, I think that's a piece of it. And then I think the other piece of it is um, trying to figure out how do you spend the time that you're with the doctor, making sure that, they, that they're that they listening, that they're compassionate, they, that they understand you know some of the uh, some of the conversations around bias. Um, most doctors, I would say, are very confident, and I uh, maybe sometimes.
0: I would say lack of humility, but that's another.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm trying to be nice, um, <laughs> but I, I think it's just you know, very confident, and uh, and that's kind of nice when you're going in for surgery or you need a professional opinion. But I I do think sometimes it means. That taking a, a a tough look at your bias, or um, or where you you don't uh, you don't see patients necessarily as the same as you, or as empathetic you know human beings to empathize with, I think I think that can become a bit of a, a problem. We're working on a series right now in um, uh, for H, uh, for BET that takes a look at um, structural racism, and and one of the st- the sixth part of the series looks at maternal mortality rates, mm-hmm. and you know you just talk to some of these women around how they were seen by their doctors, and and how you know how they're trying to solve this this disparity in outcomes for Black women when it comes to childbirth. There's a problem, and I and I, I think it's a, a multi pronged problem, and I think we have to figure out how to confront it. And a piece of that is. A lot of these women describe just not being heard by their doctors, that their doctors don't really listen to them.
0: Well, one of the things that we used to do in Miami that I insisted upon in the university practice as well as my own practice was I had the doctor walk out and introduce themselves to bring in their own patient. I see that as a simple courtesy. The other thing that I got most of the physicians to do was not introduce themselves as doctor so-and-so unless they were giving a title to the patient. To shift that power differential so the patient felt comfortable to give you a history. Because the history is really, you can make almost 80% of your diagnosis on a good history. Granted, we're limited by time with these different things, but it it becomes really important. But we also have to look at the admissions criteria. I mean, if you look at our country's outcomes, we're doing something wrong in medical education. We're not producing the physicians we need. We might have more patents than anybody else in the world. (laughs) We might have the best technology, but all this is great only when you're really sick. So we're not addressing the issues that need to, the social determinants of health, the ethical foundations that need to be there, looking for ethical conflicts, teaching students about policy. One of the big things we have with Maren Gillis, she's a, a philosopher and she is uh, the uh, chair of the Cambridge Consortium for Bioethics and she does our uh, learning innovations with studio design teaching as well as hackathons, is having a philosopher teach the students at the beginning so we could teach them critical thinking skills. Because when these students come in, they're great at memorizing, but life is not an algorithm. And the complexity and the changes in medicine coming down the row is particularly accelerated by COVID makes it important that we change the way we approach education. Not change the, fa- the, 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 the that a student has to have this certain level of skills to be a, an excellent cl- uh, clinician. But what do we need to teach the student? And what do we as faculty members have to exhibit? The, the epitome of professionalism, the epitome of ethics. Because if we don't do that, how can we require that our students do the same thing? But how do you balance I those always two? I
1: wonder, is it, is it a fear of being seen as weak? I remember when I was pregnant, I can't remember which pregnancy it was because I have a bunch of kids, but I remember <laughs> at one point there was like a tour of, 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 of medical students coming through <laughs> my room. And, and it just, like, it unfolded. And, and, and you know, I remember it because, as you were saying, about introducing yourself, right. like, the doctor never said, hi, I'm Dr. Jones, and these are, you know, students here at the medical center, and I'd love for them to be here while we do a follow-up on your postpartum, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember being like, so you, no one can touch me till I know, like, who the heck are you guys well, in the, my room? It was so well, they unnerving. Shoo, they shoo
2: you along <laughs> because you had... You, because once you agreed to being at a teaching hospital and, and signing that thing that said, yeah, I know I'm at a teaching hospital, as far
0: as they're concerned, I don't need to talk to you about this again. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, the, exactly, the, proper way,
1: exactly right.
0: the proper way is the physician comes in, introduces themselves and says, would you mind if some medical students came in? Because one of the things that I used to hate when I was on the wards teaching is you'd have these medical students come in Say you'd hear an interesting sound in the lungs on auscultation, and every student wanted to stick a, st- a stethoscope on the back at the same time, and you're going, you guys, no, 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 no. I okay. had
1: my heart beat t- looked at, like, eight times. <laughs> Just, <laughs> no. I, I love students. I didn't mind, but it was like... You know what, before you jam a little Colt stethoscope under my little flimsy robe here, maybe a first name would be a good
0: icebreaker. <laughs> That's right. I'm telling you right now, if, I've had, if I have prostate problems, I'm not going to a teaching hospital. <laughs> 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 so, sorry. I had about
1: that. an interesting thing happen to me when my mom. Uh, passed away about a year and a half ago, but b- before she uh, died, she'd been, she'd been sick for a while and she had uh, carcinoid tumors. Mm. And we went to visit her in the hospital. And uh, my husband, who is white, light brownish, blondish hair, and me and my mom is a little black lady with a short Afro. And the entire time, the doctor, who had to be younger than me, would only talk to my husband. And I was just like... <laughs> Oh, good. So, Let me promise you, she's not related to him. Like, I, I could not, and I would have to, like, and my husband, who's a very polite person, would nod. I'm like, he's not listening to you. Why are you talking to him? <laughs> he's very, very polite. He has no scared idea what he's
2: talking about. <laughs> he's okay, very so, scared And of I you. just
1: remember thinking, so, like, here's a guy who really could use a conversation about why do you defer to the man in this thing? When clearly, right, every sign would be like, oh, this lady is this person's, you know, this is her daughter over here. My mom and I looked a lot alike. Um, and I just remember thinking it was such a strange thing um, that I could not break the doctor out of. He just was very used to having a conversation with the guy. And that's Ooh. what he wanted to do. And by the way, that's what he did. And then I asked my husband, like, so what did he say exactly? And he's like, I don't know. I wasn't really.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, th- that shows two things that are Extremely evident in our profession, sexism and racism. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because we with the uh, Black Lives Matter students at our prior institution at FIU, we were there one day and we were talking about, you know, what if a, phys- a patient comes in and says, no, I want to see a white doctor? How do you mm-hmm. handle that? And then I asked a question to the student, a black male, and I said, what if the patient was a female and she came in and said, I would like a woman doctor. How would you take that? Yeah. I said, first of all, the studies show that they're better physicians than we are and much more empathetic and actually listen to the patient. And maybe it was falling on that. It had nothing to do with your race, it had all to do with your gender. We haven't done ourselves well. And our goal here is of the six of us that are the senior leadership of this medical school, only two of us have MDs. We have Lou, who I will now introduce. Oh, here we go. <laughs> there we go. Here we go. See? See?
1: 35 minutes into thank the podcast. You, thank Carry you, on.
2: Soledad. Soledad is the same way at his house. It's <laughs> the same way on the street. <laughs> I'm 35 He's consistent. minutes. He's consistent.
0: Yeah. He is very consistent. Met him. He's know. consistent. I've been in country many miles, OK? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lou did his postdocs at the University of London in community development. He also worked for many years for John Lewis. Apart from that, he has been in the real world in uh, economic and community development at Harlem. He has more degrees than anybody I know. No. (laughs) And uh, actually, you know, he, Morehouse Georgia State and University of Georgia and being from Florida, we hated Georgia, but after these recent elections, I told him I will bow down to Georgia for the rest of my <laughs> life, okay? I love Georgia. I'm buying Ooh, peaches. that's on tape, that's I, on tape. I, I, I'm buying <laughs> peaches like crazy. <laughs> Lou is also at the University of Michigan as a professor, was a founding faculty at the FIU College of Public Health and founding faculty at the uh, uh, College of Medicine. He's also, the, Lou has this ability to see things from 30,000 feet as well as boots on the ground. And he, one of the most amazing things that Lou has accomplished is because my role at our last institution was to run block and protect them from doctors. So he could develop was, was his household-centered mo, model of care. But what Lou was able to do was understanding both worlds and how social programming looks at the family, medical intervention looks at the individual. How do you marry those two, since we found out that the smallest unit of measure was actually the household? And then these were all the social determinants, all the things that affected it. And uh, with that, you're on. Uh,
2: I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, I would say though, with all of that, with all of that, I think the greatest part or the biggest intervention in that is Joe allowing me to do what it is I do. Sometimes people bring you on and they and they say, okay, uh, you're really talented. Here's what I want you to do. <laughs> um, and so Joe Joe left me to my own devices. I don't know if he did that intentionally or he just fell asleep at the wheel. I don't know, but he he allowed me to do what it is that I did, and I appreciate him for that uh, infinitely. But honestly, Joe, the biggest piece I think that we left behind was the ability to, 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 to restore in some ways the idealism in the Student. faculty, students, and staff who saw that doing things against convention could still um, lead to being recognized as highly competent, could still be recognized as being uh, a good person, and that there's value in that. And so um, that's, to me, that's the biggest thing I think I, we did I, I, um, and, and plan to do. Right, So we're here now, and we can double down on it here, um, because back
0: there, we didn't have a roadmap. Now we do. Not only that, we, we have, we're at a private institution that's been around for a couple of decades, so we don't have to deal with state politics, mm-hmm. but we get a blank slate to get it right. And we've actually been working with uh, Dave Lawrence, who used to be the CEO of uh, Kaiser Permanente, like 25 years ago. Well, he was on the board of KGI at Claremont, and uh, he kept complaining of the medical school. He said it was too traditional, too traditional. So at the age of 80, as a retired olive rancher in Northern California, he took the job as dean. So we've been meeting at least once or twice a week Mm -hmm. because he's developing, as we are also, a master's program to get first-generation students prepared for medical school. And what we've done is we've formed a council of deans. We have the dean from Stanford, NYU, Long Beach, Hackensack, Geisinger, uh, Oregon, uh, Kansas, and a, a couple others that we're, uh, Harry, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Drew, to be able to get a pipeline of students that we ignore in this country. We throw away talent, and we can't do that. I mean, just with the statistics we had at our last institution with 70, 75% of the students only getting into our institution, yet every graduating class we've had has had the highest step scores and the highest pass rate in the entire entire state. So you gotta relook at admissions policies. You have to relook at a lot of things and you're going against the traditions of medicine. But the, and we'll be coming back to you many times because your advice is invaluable. Remember, Uber wasn't started by a taxi driver and Amazon wasn't started by a retailer. So if we keep looking at things through the lens of a doctor, we're going to keep making the same mistakes we're making now. Mm-hmm. Lou, you had a question for it, didn't you? I, I do have a question for you. So, so, okay, we've gotten all of the mundane stuff out of the way.
2: I told you so of that, that, you know, you, you brought up that I, um, uh, Helped you out with something. So now I'm going to give you the chance to return the favor by answering one question. Done. Here we go. All right. So I have a series of um, life goals. Okay. Okay. Somewhat non-traditional, but life goals. And one okay. of those life goals. I'm getting,
1: my, I'm getting out my notebook. There we go. Right, right there we down. go.
2: One of those life goals is somewhat advantageous. It is a um, chance encounter with Bryant Gumbel. Mm. Okay, here we go. It's going to go further. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm a very well-prepared individual. And so, I have this vision in my head that one day I'm going to run into Bryant Gumbel and I'm going to want to hug him. <laughs> and so, my question is a two-part question. I think you're already going to answer the first part. One, is Bryant Gumbel a hugger? And two, if he is... Am I the inside part of the hug, or the outside part of the hug?
1: Hit it. So, let's step back a little. <laughs> um, I can help you with your chance encounter with Brian Gumble because once we get through coronavirus, you know, uh, I can make, it doesn't have to be a chance encounter. I can literally bring you to the studio, and you can just come and meet him.
2: Can I hug him?
1: Um, <sighs> <laughs> I think if you warn him you're going in for a hug, you could. I think he will lose all respect for you. So I think you might want to just wave that against the upside of hugging him.
2: I, On the I other think-
1: hand, I'm sure you're not the first person who felt so moved that they just had to hug Brian Gumble. So I, I think he would net-net be okay with it because he'd be like, oh, yeah, he's a hugger. Um, but I think, I think maybe, yeah, you could hug him for sure. You just have to warn him. But I will there set that up for you. As soon as we're back in a studio, we know we shoot. We're actually I've got to shoot for HBO tomorrow, and um, you know we we just shoot in in uh, at home. Everybody, you know, we set up all that stuff. So at home. That, that you do know we're, we're recording, recording this, testing. right? So when we're back in the studio, I, since you're constantly helping me and giving me advice, <laughs> I will in turn bring you to meet Brian Gumble, and I'm going to warn him though that you want to hug him because you love him so.
2: Oh, then then that's it. That, that's it, I like yeah. solely that that right
1: there. It it won't be a chance encounter because there's like layers and layers well, of security. We'll make it, We'll make it seem yes. like it is. We'll make it <laughs> okay.
2: seem like it's a chance encounter.
1: No, it won't be like a bumping into him. You'll like you'll we'll walk in and go and meet him. But he'd love to meet you.
2: Oh, that's it. That
1: and I'll warn him about the hug.
2: Yeah, just, <laughs> hug. well like slightly. Don't don't make it creepy, because I
1: want it to be like <laughs> sort of Sort of, you know. A, a, a me don't make it creepy? Like, hi, I'm going to bring a friend and he'd like to hug you? I, 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 you don't... The, uh, well, I'll
2: bring Joe. Okay. I'll bring Joe. <laughs> Joe will be like my hugging assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll wait 30 minutes to introduce Joe. And you're worried
1: that I'm making it creepy. Okay,
2: okay. I'll wait 30 minutes uh-huh. to introduce Joe to Bryant Gumble.
1: <laughs> and then 30 minutes later he can hug him okay,
2: okay this, no 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 that's not my bucket list okay that's not on my bucket list <laughs> Soledad I have you additional? on I have you on tape Soledad so
1: now it's done No, I don't even need to be on tape because that I, I have so little juice but that I can get done that oh that's
2: do. it that's it I'm done now no, we can totally. wrap as soon as, as soon as the
1: studio is back in and we're allowed to bring people in because we're through the pandemic done and done
2: I'm keeping my beard then
1: I do. I love Brian Gumble, and he's very, um, he's very, uh, he's very tough, but he's funny. But like, you have to come very prepared.
2: Yeah, I can see he that. He doesn't
1: look around. He does not. He does not suffer fools at all. Mm, no, no, no.
2: He strikes me as somebody who drinks Manhattans.
1: I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to ask him that too. So, Brian, how do you feel about hugs? And also, Manhattans? <laughs> Is that before or after the hug? <laughs> Maybe, maybe in that order. <laughs> I don't know. He's a fun guy. He's very smart, but like, do not ever half-ass it with Brian Gumble.
2: Okay. Ever. And so then that's get- a full hug then. I'm going yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Listen, if you're going in for a hug, you might as well just go Yeah, I got, I'm going all in.
2: Okay. I, I'm not worried about the respect part, to be very honest with you. I'm walking away.
1: I feel like you can let that go.
0: <laughs> for a person that says they have very little juice... I know for a fact that you are one of the most philanthropic yes. you and your husband people in this in this country. I mean, you have set up scholarship in your parents' names, a significant significant scholarships. You have a foundation, powerful. You want can you tell us a little about that?
1: Sure. Yeah, well, you know, we send we send girls to and through school to college. Like, occasionally we'll take someone who's kind of finishing up high school too. Um, it's been very rewarding. It's been a lot of fun to see uh, young women um, kind of go through a lot and come out the other side and be successful. Um, it's just really, it's just really nice to kind of root for them. So it's mm-hmm. it's great. The the whole pandemic has been obviously way over-indexing in people of color, and a number of our scholars have. Um, I think we've buried three parents. So it's been very, it's been, it's just been tough on them and tough generally. And I know we had to kind of go back to the drawing board on, you know, does our foundation cover this? I mean, it's, is this within the scope of what we do? And the answer was, of course, yes. So, um, but I have just found it, Brad and I, because we do it together, have just found it very rewarding to invest in sort of young people who, you know, you see them and, and and they've got so much potential. They just kind of are on the wrong path, or they just don't really believe in themselves. And um, I was talking to one of our scholars uh, the other day, who's a great girl who who ended up at IBM. And just to see how she has just grown and flourished has been amazing. And you know, done some things really well, made some stupid mistakes too. But just you know, like life has just, just figured it out. It's it's been really it's been really fun to watch them. Them grow, and so it's it's been a very rewarding uh, experience for me.
0: And you say th- things have been tough for them. I know that in some examples, they've been homeless and still going to school.
1: Yeah, we've had students who are homeless going to school, lost their parents and going to school, uh, eating out of food pantries that during a pandemic because everything goes online, the food pantry itself closes down. So still oh, going wow. to school. I mean, it's just very hard. Whatever. Whatever challenge is happening in in the country and the world, you know they are hit by it, you know they over index unfortunately in the problems and and they're trying we're trying to keep them from taking on a ton of debt as well for their schooling. but they've just been um, you know they're just great young women and I have loved the way that they are interested in in getting an education and um, and and recognizing how important that is and so that's been a, that's been just very it really fun to watch them you know you get them at like 18 and now we've had some you know these young women now for 15 years and it's just really fun to see them sort of blossom into these you know people grown people it's 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 really been a lot of fun but yes they have lots and lots you know we have a, a scholar right now who is dean's list brilliant girl wonderful um, and trying to figure out her financial picture because her she's now an orphan. You know, her dad just died. Oh, wow. uh, and we met because she reached out to ask if I would give her the $900 to get his body out of the morgue. She didn't have any money. Wow. You know, h- how do you, how are you, res- you know, we talk a lot about resilience, but I just don't know how you continually ask some of these young people to be resilient, you know, day in and day out and day in and day out and day in. It's it's just, you know, it's very traumatizing, obviously.
0: what What in your upbringing, gave you this deep sense of social justice and caring and compassion?
1: I think it's having five brothers and sisters, and so you're always like, it needs to be equal. It needs to be equal. (laughs) I think that's it. I think you really just get pissed off when it feels like it's unfair. (laughs) I have a very finely honed sense of justice. (laughs) Only I'm feeling like somebody might be getting something that I wasn't getting. You know, I I don't know. I, I, I certainly think that, a lot of what I like to report on, especially around race and social justice, is more like history. You know, we, we, we're very ignorant as Americans about our history, so we don't connect the dots. And mm-hmm. and so it is about justice sometimes, but often it's also about this idea of, you know, did, did you know that this was the case? We're working on this series now called Disrupt and Dismantle that looks at um, stru- uh, structural racism. You know, and, and people would be like, but why do all the black people want to live near the, the dumps and the um, the recycling places? And you're like, okay, let's talk about redlining. You know, like there's there are these reasons and it's just frustrating sometimes that we don't have a good grasp of our history um, to understand why things kind of happen today. And so I I really, I think my interest is always in connecting the dots and helping people to understand the kind of, you know, how we got here.
0: I had a physician tell me at a meeting two nights ago, or tell the group actually, uh, we were talking about how do we get uh, Hispanics and African-Americans, brown and black people to get the uh, vaccine. And Mm. his statement was, "I, I can't understand why somebody wouldn't want to take the vaccine at all. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Why are we having this discussion? And I was just floored. I was shocked. History. History. I said History. No, maybe trust. Maybe the fact that we've ignored them. Maybe the fact that they are the hardest hit group with this. So why should they they trust our public health system? Why I mean, the list goes on and on. Right,
1: there's like 10 extremely good reasons. Yeah, exactly. 10 extremely good ones. And then there's a whole bunch of like pretty good reasons. <laughs> then there's just some good reasons. And then there's just the crazy conspiracy theory type stuff. But the list is about 100 things long.
0: That's exactly right. And I'm looking at him and saying, this is an individual we consider educated. And that's the other problem with uh, medical education is we are great at the specialty we go into with poor understanding of history and of the world. I would rather take a liberal arts major that minors in the sciences, because they have critical thinking, they have read history, they have read literature, they understand other cultures, than one who gets straight A's in organic chemistry and biochemistry and all they do is science. Because they, they, they would make a great bench scientist but a better bench scientist is one that also understands what's going on in society and can direct their science towards resolving those ills. And we give yeah. doctors so much power.
2: Yeah. So despite their limited exposure, they're given enormous amounts of power and access to be decision makers. And so that's sort of kind of, you always, just, you always talk about how, you know, doctors could be, you know, tremendous advocates for the poor if, if armed and equipped with the right information. Right.
0: And they, it's, no, 100%. And, you know, at the same token, as European friends of mine that are physicians have told me, he goes, you know, every time we go to America, all you Americans doctors do is complain about your income. You make more than we do. I said, well, because that's the status in America. That's the way it is. I mean, it got to the point that at the hospital, it was about 20 years ago, I stopped eating in the doctor's dining room because the conversation was so much better with the staff and employees of the hospital in the employee's dining room. The doctor's dining room- Although
1: I do understand, I mean, for a lot of people who are super, super highly educated, right? they're not choosing between their pay as a physician and something else equal. These are the people who could go into the top Mm -hmm. tiers of any industry, right? So they're comparing it to- if i didn't go to medical school and i decided to become an investment banker if i didn't go to medical school and instead went out to silicon valley to to you know oversee such and such and so you know i i do sort of understand this idea that we in america are not really good at um paying for some of the things that we value. I remember my obstetrician who I loved, I used to tell him all the time that, that one of the reasons I kept having kids was that I loved him so much that I loved him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he's a wonderful man, wonderful man. And uh, But you know, he eventually quit the business because he's like, my malpractice insurance is impossible. And he did high risk pregnancies. He assured me that I was a, um, there was a note on my chart that, or very advanced maternal age, right? I was like, "Oh, what's AMA?" He's like, "Oh, that's advanced maternal age." I was like, oh,
0: "What?" And he's like, oh, "Don't worry."
1: There's also very, advanced age. But, you know, like I, I understood that here's a guy who was super well educated, highly respected in his field, worked insane hours, right, and. At the end of the day, his his malpractice rates were so high that he opted to get out of the business. And he was a wonderful, wonderful doctor. And I, I, I you know, I, I think he felt like there are just other things that he could do where he would work less and maybe have. Uh, I think he loved delivering babies, but have you know less of what he loved, but also didn't have to pay the malpractice insurance. And so I do think sometimes it's a little bit comparing apples and oranges when you. You talk to people overseas because their medical structure is so different. Yes, right.
2: right. Well, we so that we appreciate all the time you were able to give us today, as always. As always,
1: my pleasure. I want to do this every week. I have my glass of wine here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to put it right over here in the back, but you know.
2: Well, I'm. I am. I am going. You will have no one tracking the studio schedule for COVID like I will.
1: <laughs> done and done. I think, I think in a year, I think in a year we'll all be back in the studio. And then I will absolutely uh, introduce you to, to Brian Gumble. He's great. He's uh, a great guy. You will love him. Wait, and he's very friendly with visitors. I've brought a couple of visitors. He's always very nice.
2: Wait till you see how much I'm following you <laughs> 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 All social media networks, everything. Oh,
1: security, security. <laughs> <I'm-> <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank
0: so, you so thank much. you so much. I mean, you my are pleasure. truly not the top fifteen, but I'm going to say the top one or two that make this country fifteen. great. Where'd they
1: fifteen from? It's like they could only find 15 people, fifteen
0: people that make the country great. That, that was those a problem. Damn algorithms, those damn algorithms. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
1: Clearly, clearly. Nice to chat, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: This is Cuba Pete from Studio A in Las Vegas. It's no laughing matter. Remember how many problems we have in this world. We have to take time out to smile and to laugh. Thank you very much. Soledad, thank you.